Hi everyone, this is Carmen. And Christina. And this is Historias Unknown, a podcast where we talk about Latin American history. Sometimes it's horrible, dealing with topics like racism, corruption, and genocide. But more than that, it's also about resistance, power, and community. So last week we talked about HR 4437, aka the Sensa Brenner bill, the protests that emerged from that bill, including La Gran Macha and the anti-immigrant. The historic protests. Yes. Correction. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the anti-immigrant sentiments of the mid-2000s. So I figured we could keep that immigration topic going. So today I bring you the sanctuary movement from the 1980s. Okay. Have you heard about this? No. Okay. I feel like I... Oh, wait, yes. My bad. Oh, okay. I hadn't really until I remembered I read something about it before. <laughs> but very briefly. Let me change my answer. I heard about churches being sanctuary for immigrants. Oh, yeah, yeah. But not about the 1980s. Oh. Yeah, well, that's when it started and it stemmed from that. And so that's why okay. we heard about it during the mid-2000s about people seeking sanctuary and living in the churches. So, yeah, before we get into it, just some general content warnings. State violence. General violence. Okay. Yeah. Mentioned a violence, like nothing we get into it, but yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot <laughs> about the conflict in El Salvador. Yes. That has led to mis mass migration and continues, you know, anyway. So yeah, we talked about that in, it's like sprinkled throughout, but I think the main one was the episode called or titled El Salvador El Mozote Massacre. Yeah. That's really where we dive into the, yeah. Yeah. And then we've talked very, very, very briefly about the conflict in Guatemala at that time, too, from the 80s in the episode titled The History of International Adoption in Guatemala. But we don't really go that in depth in that episode. I think we just talk about there was a civil war and that's kind of what yeah, um, led to the issues with the international adoption. So we know that there were civil wars in El Salvador and Guatemala at the time. And that most were fleeing political repression and violence caused by those civil wars. Others from Nicaragua fled their country in the wake of the 1979 revolution. In El Salvador over, and this is where the content warnings come in. So in El Salvador, over 10,000 Salvadorians were killed by the military by 1980. While in Guatemala, government-backed paramilitary groups had killed 50,000. Oh my God. Disappeared 100,000. And perpetrated 626 village massacres. And we've also talked a bit about like forced disappearances. And that's why we say like they disappeared. Like people mm -hmm. didn't go missing. You know, they were disappeared. They were disappeared. Yeah. 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 So these are horrible stats, you know, and countless lives were lost to war and violence. And of course, you know, that instability, war and violence can always be traced back to the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, that goes without saying, but we have to say it. <laughs> yeah. Anytime we can repeat it, we will. Yes. Yeah. If there's one thing I will say, it's that. <laughs> yeah. Between 1980 and 1981, almost a million Central Americans crossed the U.S. border seeking asylum. During this time, the official policy under the Reagan administration really hindered Central Americans from obtaining asylum status. So Congress forbade foreign aid to countries committing human rights abuses while simultaneously aiding and arming the Salvadorian and Guatemalan governments, causing the human rights abuses, right? Like Insane. Exactly, yeah. yeah. 
the Reagan administration argued that Central Americans were not refugees, uh, fleeing violence and government repression. Repression, Rather, they were economic migrants fleeing poverty. Both can be true. Yeah, both can be true. Both both are true. Yeah. Yeah, both are true. Yeah. Because like why, you know, people don't have jobs because I don't know. It's a, it's a side effect from all the violence too. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So because of this definition, many Central Americans didn't qualify for asylum since asylum was granted based on proof of well-rounded fear of persecution. And although this was a definition of asylum under the law, under the Refugee Act, the Reagan administration had discretion under that law and they prevented the legal recognition of Central American asylum claims. Because, you know, if if they allowed or let American Central Americans define themselves as, as refugees of violence and war, then the Reagan administration would have to admit their hand in causing that, right? So that was yeah. a huge part in why they would refuse, why they refused to do that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So back then, Guatemalans and Salvadorians had visa approval rates just below 3% compared to 100% for Cubans. Wow. <laughs> of, I mean, yeah. 60% approval rates for Iranian immigrants, 40% for, and I, guess I should say refugees because that's what the asylum, you know, is about. Yeah. 40% for Afghanistan refugees fleeing the Soviet invasion, 32% for Polish refugees, 12% for Nicaraguans escaping the Sandinistas. But still, many Nicaraguans were denied asylum. Wow. Many Central Americans who did reach the United States were held in detention centers and deported. And despite the Reagan administration claiming Central Americans were economic migrants in 1985, the ACLU found that 130 Salvadorians who had been deported back to El Salvador upon their arrival, they were disappeared, tortured or killed. So it's like where, you know, this is straight. These are people seeking like legitimate asylum, which yeah. I'd argue everything is. <laughs> but, you know, that's everything the point. is legitimate asylum to me. <laughs> yeah, but exactly. This is legally. Yeah. <laughs> actually asylum (laughs) yeah so the sanctuary movement was a religious and political camp and that was just a painted picture of what it looked like yeah so the sanctuary movement was a religious and political campaign that began in the early 80s to provide safe haven for central american refugees fleeing conflict and it was really in direct response to federal immigration policies that made obtaining asylum difficult for central americans and the movement began with a And I'm sorry, I don't know how to say any of these um, religions or different Christianities. The only one I know how to say is Catholic Catholicism. And that's barely. See, I missed that when I said it. And I can barely say that, (laughs) actually. So the movement began with a Presbyterian church. That was right. Yeah. It's because it's spelled with a B, but I feel like it's pronounced with a P, like Presbyterian. No? Wait, how is it spelled? It's spelled P-R-E-S-B-Y-T-E-R-I-N. Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Is that what you said? Yeah, but I'm seeing it with yeah. a P. Oh. Well, <laughs> Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's a B. <laughs> okay, my bad. The movement began <laughs> with the Presbyterian Church and a Quaker meeting in Tucson, Arizona, and eventually led to a network of religious congregations. So these two congregations began legal and human humanitarian assistance to Salvadorian and Guatemalan refugees in 1980. After two years of assisting refugees, Reverend John Fife of the Southside Presbyterian Church decided to take action 
because none of the refugees that he and his church were assisting had been granted political asylum. So on March 24th, 1982, the Southside Presbyterian Church of Tucson became the first church in the U.S. to declare itself a sanctuary for Salvadorian and Nicaraguan refugees. On that date, Reverend John Five from the church announced that his church would openly defy the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the INS, and become a sanctuary for Central Americans. Incidentally, um, Reverend John made this announcement on the anniversary of the assassination of Oscar Romero. Oh my gosh, chills. And this was actually intentional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes sense. But wow. <sighs> yeah. Amazing. Amazing because, again, we talked about it a little bit a couple, a few episodes ago, but that he's literal saint. I mean, like he was canonized. Actually, I was going to write it literal saint, but I did it. I forgot. <laughs> literal saint. Yeah. Yes. Canonized and everything. But he stood for the people. He used the church for good, for what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, so to know that this other church is, you know, it's just, it's amazing. It's yeah. Amazing. The sanctuary movement expanded rapidly, gaining support from Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish organizations. And by wow. 1985, the movement had grown to include over 250 churches around the country. And then I saw that later on, it was like over 500. Wow. Yeah. So what the churches and religious organizations saw as a morally driven humanitarian movement, the Reagan administration viewed as an illegal political ploy to challenge U.S. policy in Central America. Uh, and I mean, the U.S. policy in Central America should be ch- should have been challenged. Yeah. So and that's fine, like to view it that way. But like to call it an illegal political ploy, that's like where my gripe was, because it's not. They're doing this to help. Yeah, it's not illegal to help people in need. (laughs) Well, actually, they're trying to make it illegal to help immigrants. So (sighs) which is why this is an important um, story from the past. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So at the time, many news media and government members questioned whether the movement was driven by humanitarian or political concerns. And to that, I say, who fucking cares? (laughs) To that, I say... And <laughs> so and what? what? <laughs> but it could be both. I mean, because to take a stand against something that is wrong and help people in, being affected by that wrong policy. Isn't it political? Exactly. No. And that's my point, yeah. because what many <laughs> view as politics, what many privileged and ignorant people, correction, yes. U.S. politics is literally life and death for marginalized communities. Oh, yes. Different churches had their own reasons for helping the Central Americans, and many drew on the aspects of Christian theology. And I feel like we talked about that word before, and I'm pronouncing it wrong. When we said liberation theology? Yeah. Yeah, that's when we've talked about it. Yeah, it is theology. No. How else would you pronounce it? I don't know. I just kind of remember like a saying like it was pronounced differently, but maybe not, I guess. Well, no, I, I guess don't not. think so. Okay. Not that I know of. <laughs> well, I'm going to say it that way then. Yeah. So, they drew on the aspects of Christian theology of sanctuary as their motivation, because this goes back, you know, it's in the Bible. <laughs> it's in, this is actually in the Bible. <laughs> um, and then many cited their feelings of compassion for those fleeing violence in the wars as their reason for helping. A man of Quaker faith, Jim Corbett, said that the tradition of Quaker faith and its involvement with the Underground Railroad um, compelled him to take action. Oh, a Quaker church? Yeah. 
You never hear that much about those. No. Others, like Gary Cook, an associate pastor from a Presbyterian church, said that interacting with desperate families compelled him to respond. He said, We're a very conservative group of folks politically, but once we encountered the refugees face-to-face, we couldn't justify not taking them in. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Like, (sighs) like, where are these church leaders now, you know? Yeah, yeah. I will say that in a lot of a lot of places, especially like California or Texas, a lot of Catholic churches are still although you take away the abortion issue. Yeah, they they do things to help people. Some of them, not all of them. But like, that's why when the 2006 immigration protesting was happening, the churches, especially the Catholic churches, really stepped up to organize, uh, help organize these protests. And then now when you look at, uh, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit, but HB 20 and HB 7 Mm -hmm. in Texas, there is pictures of like pastors like speaking against like, we are against these bills in Texas. Yeah. And again, we'll get into them, but. Not all. I mean, you know, we like to call out the hypocritical conservative Christians, but there is people out there trying to help. Not all Christians. The vulnerable. Not all Christians. (laughs) Not all Christians. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Another man of Quaker faith, Jim Dudley, remembered coming across a man hitchhiking on the side of a road outside of Tucson. And after picking him up, learning that he was a Salvadorian refugee trying to get to San Francisco, Jim remembered that Border Patrol stopped his car, identified the man as an undocumented person, and arrested him. And Jim was left uneasy after this encounter, and he took it upon himself to learn more about the Central American crisis. Wow. Wow. I know, right? And I know this was a time where people regularly picked up hitchhikers. So, but still, like, to have that happen and yourself be like let me learn more about this and see what i can do to help like amazing yeah and i know you kind of just said this so (laughs) i had a blurb about that i'm pretty critical of the church (laughs) oh what what i just said Um, but i mean i think what you just said and also like if they would come across as actually following kindness that is supposedly taught in the bible you know we would be less critical right and instead like a lot of church now or religious organizations have aligned themselves with hatred, racism, xenophobia, transphobia, hate. So like, you know, that's the reason why we're critical. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So Reverend John five posted two banners on the building of his church on March 24th, 1982, when he declared his church, a public sanctuary, the banners read, this is a sanctuary for the press of central America. And I just love how we just straight up called out oppressed. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And then the second banner said, immigration, do not profane the sanctuary of God. So like, don't come in here, INS. <laughs> don't come in here, eyes. <laughs> stay out. And then say that. And stay out. <laughs> the churches that participated in the sanctuary movement functioned like the Underground Railroad in that churches along the path of immigrants communicated and coordinated with each other. So like churches in Mexico had connections with churches in Arizona to help. Wow. Yeah. So, and then activists, secular activists from like universities and different organizations worked with the churches who developed coordinated um, routes to transport um, people to the sanctuaries. 
Initially, the churches worked to get refugees with credible claims of asylum to Canada because Canada was more likely to grant asylum to Central Americans. But the fucking Reagan administration successfully lobbied to the Canadian government, which had just become conservative, to tighten the border and exclude Central Americans from asylum claims. I'm like, what the fuck? Why? Oh, my God. That's so... It shouldn't be like against... Like, it's blatant racism to say exclude this group of people from your asylum claims yeah right? on what basis is he is he like on the same like shit trying to say like they're economic migrants so they these are not but oh my god i mean they weren't like people were fleeing there was a civil war like yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that led to more u.s churches becoming public sanctuaries okay so many major denominations issued official statements and so I just wanted to share a couple of them. All right. The Presbyterian Church stated, the church recommends that the General Assembly support congregations and individuals who provide sanctuary to asylum seekers as a way of showing Christian compassion for them and stressing the need for change in our government's policies and actions. Wow. And that other congregations be challenged to take this stance. I'm like, imagine now, you know, some big Christian church saying that. I know, and I know there is, like you said, Christian churches that help out, but I feel like but it's more local. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is like the straight up, like, you know, the organizations at of, the top yeah. Yeah, that put out these statements. The American Baptist churches stated, therefore, we, rec we commend, not recommend, sorry. Therefore, we commend to American Baptist churches the following that you respect those churches that responding to the leading of God's spirit are providing sanctuary for refugees fleeing certain suffering and death in Central America. So they were just saying like, hey, other churches follow in our steps and do the shit too, you know? <laughs> other churches get with it. Like, yeah. what are you doing? Get with it. What are you doing? <laughs> get with the program. Um, and then secular groups like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, legal aid groups, mm -hmm. um, Democrat members of Congress and student organizations, especially from the UCs, also became part of the sanctuary movement. And then this was actually when Berkeley, California, declared itself a sanctuary city. Mm, yes. And there's um, several across yeah, California now, right? Yeah. Yeah. That concept, which was much less known about then, but now we have various cities not only throughout California, but like every like other states that have declared themselves sanctuary cities, not only for immigrants, but also like other marginalized communities. Like recently, I forgot, like, but, you know, there's a lot of anti-trans legislation oh, coming yeah, out yeah. of like Florida and I don't know, a bunch of right wing states and other states in response have said like, hey, we are a sanctuary state for um, trans people. Oh, like what states do you know? I don't remember off the top of my I can't head, remember, yeah. but they've even said like, hey, if you flee, if you leave your state because you are seeking like, I don't know, like medical treatment for trans, you know, come here. Yeah, come here, which is what being sanctuary is, all about, is about. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to see San Francisco as a sanctuary um, city as well. I kind of remember that from back. Oh, OK. But back to this. So in the mid 1980s, the INS began to persecute members of the sanctuary movement. And this resulted in a series of high-profile trials in Texas and Arizona, which later became known as the Sanctuary Trials. Oh, I've never heard of this. Me either. In 1985, the INS launched a 10-month investigation called Operation Sojourner, which feels like a cruel joke to me because that... <laughs> 
that's the name of Sojourner Truth, who was famously an abolitionist. <laughs> I'm like, why would they call it that? <laughs> yeah, um, that's fucking rude. Yeah. Well, it's like, I'm sorry to uh-huh. go off this side note, but Fort Hood was just, uh, Fort Hood was renamed after a Latino uh, general because they were like, oh, Fort Hood is a racist uh, <sighs> person. So we're going to rebrand and now call it this. And it's like, I'm sorry, that's a fucking insult to the Latinas that have been found dead in this base. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just reminded me and of It's that. like, who comes up with these names? Come on. <laughs> Name it something else. Keep Fort Hood. Like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. So as part of this operation, the INS sent paid informants into sanctuary communities to gain the trust of its members, find information and report back to the INS. Fucking FBI and fucking informants and or government and informants. Like. Right? Like this is how they destroy movements. Yeah. After this investigation, the government initiated criminal prosecutions against two activists in the RGV, the Rio, the Rio Grande Valley. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm like, what is a V? <laughs> I only ever hear RGV. <laughs> anyway, so these people were Jack Elder, who was Catholic, and Stacy Merkt. I'm sorry, the last name. Merkt. <laughs> uh, surely it's pronounced differently? I don't no. know. It's spelled M-A-R-K-T. Merkt. <laughs> M-A? No, sorry. E. M-E-R-K-T. Oh. Merkt. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She was Methodist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and they had provided sanctuary to Central Americans. The following year, the Department of Justice indicted 16 Americans and Mexicans on 71 counts of conspiracy and encouraging and aiding illegal aliens, quote, to enter the United States by shielding, harboring and transporting them. Sounds like a made up crime. (laughs) It sounds like a fake crime. (laughs) Yeah. From your made up rules, from your made up border. (laughs) Just to uh, destroy this movement. Yeah. Yeah. So among those were Jim Corbett, who I mm, mentioned earlier, about him. John yeah. Five. Okay. Yeah. And then Father Quinones from Nogales, Mexico, Reverend Anthony Clark, and then Sister Darlene. And I didn't write down her last name because it was too hard to pronounce. So I'm like, oh, okay. you know, like long European last name. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Darlene. I'm sorry, Sister Darlene and others. So the defendants cited their rights under the constitution and international law arguing that they were employing their first amended free exercise claims. So let's define that real quick. Just thank you for anyone out there <laughs> for me. <laughs> so the free exercise clause goes along with the establishment cause under the first amendment of the constitution. And it says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Oh, does that sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, the defendants argued that they were simply living out their faith by providing refuge. I mean, they were. Yeah. Is it not the most, the most like thing to do, or the most like Catholic or not Christian, the right Christian thing to do would have been to help these people. Yeah. Um, because that's what Jesus would have done, right? It's like, you know, when you get up in the morning and you ask yourself, WWJD. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. He would provide refuge for refugees. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And we should note that this clause is usually used for evil. (laughs) 
And here, <laughs> they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I believe this was the clause that they used. Do you remember years ago, that gay couple that entered a cake shop looking for a wedding <sighs> cake? Yeah. And then the owner was like, this is against my religion. Nah. Yeah. I believe that was the clause that they used for that. I think you're right. To defend it themselves or whatever. But um, anyway, on the day of her arraignment, Sister Darlene said, if I'm guilty of anything, I'm guilty of the gospel. Oh, damn right, Sister, Sister Darlene. Darlene. <laughs> yes. The defendants reference passages from the Old and New Testaments, like Leviticus 19.34, which says... The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. People. <laughs> that is actually in the Bible. But they don't do this, do they? <laughs> no. And then they also cited the story of Exodus from Isaiah 14.32, which says, What answer is there for the envoys of the nation? This, that the Lord has fixed Zion in her place, and the afflicted among God's people shall take refuge there. So basically, like refuge, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The defense argued that the U.S. administration's policy towards Central Americans violated the 1980 Refugee Act. And this law, the Refugee Act, was like amended, I don't know what you call it, in 1980 to reflect the international law from the 1951 U.N. Convention. So it took the United States like 30 plus years to get with the international standards, mm -hmm. which makes sense because... <laughs> Sounds of about course. right. Yeah. Yeah. And then also to reflect the 1967 protocol relating to the status of refugees. I don't know what that is. Whatever. Mm, okay. <laughs> so yep. the sanctuary trials led to public outcry and protests held at INS facilities all over the country. Mm. Ultimately, eight members of the movement were found guilty on the, quote, alien smuggling charges. Oh, my God. And most received suspended sentences or short house arrests. But still, like the point was to punish. Yeah. The point was to scare them. To stop the and, movement. Uh, punish them and scare them into not doing this anymore, thus breaking the movement. It's like yeah. we talked about last episode about the ICE raids increasing after the protest. The protesting to destroy the movement. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. A broad coalition of eight religious organizations with the support of the Center for Constitutional Rights sued the U.S. Attorney General and the head of the INS. Bam. Good. Alleging that the Attorney General and the INS violated domestic and inter international laws and movements, members' First Amendment rights of free exercise. They lost the case. Oh. But gained even more public sympathy for the cause. Good. Yeah. So through lobbying from this movement, Central Americans gained temporary protected status. But as we know... Every year, it's a battle to get that renewed. I what is the status of TPS right now? Because it's is it's, it back on yeah. for Central Americans? Yeah, or it for is. Salvadorans. Okay, yeah, because there was a period in during the Trump administration yeah. that they were going to remove El Salvador from the temporary protective status, which allows Salvadorans to work in this country. They can't go in and out, but they can legally be here. But it's not it's citizenship. Not, and it, there's still no legal pathway towards yeah. citizenship or even residency. Yeah. And so I know a lot of people didn't go back to reapply for their TPS when when this happened during yeah. the administration. And now it's like th there's a risk of reapplying if you let it lapse. Like, are they going to deport you because yeah. you were here illegally because you didn't reapply? 
but it was like a confusing time for a lot of immigrants yeah. in the country because they didn't know they were like oh it's not uh, they're taking it away oh no it's back oh it's actually unconstitutional and they have to keep it yeah oh it's gone like it was it was it was confusing it was a confusing time and there's a an organization the tps alliance that was fighting to get tps back basically during that time too yes i remember i was af- i was afraid for um our dad that, that's what led me to seek out and see what was <laughs> being done about it and you know even yes. if you can't be yeah. out on the streets there's other people that are out there and you can support them financially you know exactly that's what i did too yeah um but yeah i i remember crying like a little baby like <laughs> Uh, yeah, me too. I, I was afraid. Like, I'm a grown ass adult, but I would like my father I in mean, the same yeah. country as me. <laughs> but you know what? I feel like it also, but it also brings back like the fear of back then when you were young. And that was an everyday fear as well. You know what I mean? So churches continue to be important to immigrant rights and have acted as sanctuaries on other occasions, like during the waves of deportation after the immigration protest or anti-immigrant protest that we talked about last episode of oh, yeah of the 2000s yeah and then during trump's presidency again yes i remember that yeah and of course there's a lot a lot to be said about the church's role in colonization racism anti anti-indigeneity sexism <laughs> but yeah you know i wish that more churches were like this today <laughs> yeah i think that for me probably for you too, as a teen who experienced, you know, xenophobia, racism, and anti-immigrant rhetoric, especially after moving, leaving Oakland to live in the Central Valley. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It would have been helpful to learn about the sanctuary movement because I don't think I felt what it was like to be othered until I got here to the Central Valley because we grew up around people like us in Oakland. There's literally no one. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Oakland was, we were in like the Latino Latina section of Oakland. Yeah. And like walking and like going to the grocery store. Yeah. It was in Spanish. Everything was in Spanish. Um, I mean, you could live there your whole life and not have to learn English. Yes. Yeah. And so it was like, I didn't, I don't think any of us realized that we were not the same. I didn't know there was worse yeah. out there. <laughs> I didn't know there was like. Until, okay, yeah, until moving to Modesto, encountering just, like, the, now the demographic is a little different, a lot different, and I wouldn't say a little bit. And so now it's like, oh, (laughs) people don't like us? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I think that if I had learned about these churches and this movement, because, I mean, we grew up going occasionally to church, Catholic church, right? Yeah, and even if we didn't, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, sorry. Even if we didn't go to um, church regularly every Sunday, there were times we did. There were times we didn't. But there was always community events by the church. Yeah. That we did go to whenever they handed out like food boxes. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd be there if there was like some event. Yeah, we'd we'd be there. So even if we didn't go to the service occasionally, it was also like a community yeah, and, um, and and our cousins went to the same church. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So like, it was a community thing too. And I mean, that was like it was like our community. It was the same language, you know, people like us. But I think after moving here, 
experiencing true uh, racism, really, xenophobia. I think it would have been helpful for me to know that there were churches full of white people that meant no harm and were helping (laughs) immigrants. Yes. Yeah. I think that it would have given me hope back then because it was a scary time back then. It was a, you know, a time like of daily fear of not knowing, hey, my mom's going to go to the store. She's going to come back. (laughs) Yeah. And we had friends whose parents got deported in a flea market raid. Yeah. And our it was the same flea market we went to. Mm -hmm. And our mom loved going there on. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, she loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was it was a scary time. And to know that there were people that were not like us celebrating these raids that wanted to help. Yeah. Oh, no. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm saying that. My bad. It would (laughs) have. The opposite of that would have been helpful. (laughs) To know that there were people like that. <laughs> yeah, because I meant, what I meant is like we knew at the time. <laughs> we that knew about those the same people. people. <laughs> yeah, the same people that were in school with us yeah. were out here making fun of all these people that were taken and deported, calling for more people to be yeah. deported, saying, oh, all immigrants should be shot while they're trying to cross. Well, do, right do you remember that you? game that um, came out and it was like shooting immigrants that were crossing the border? It was no. like a game. Oh my god. I don't remember if like it was like a, a computer like an game. online game. Yeah, that someone made. And it was like during this time, you know. So I mean I'm not surprised. I probably blocked it out of my memory. I'm like, yeah, like what do you think that does to a little brown child of immigrants? <laughs> like people want to kill my parents. Yeah. People yeah. don't want me here. Not to men I mean, and then in school itself, in yeah. high school, like there were her uh undocumented students. Yeah. And so it's just it's wild to have such a, I don't know, so many students that were so xenophobic, so many mm-hmm. white students that were so xenophobic in the same spaces. Yeah. This is why I didn't talk to any of them, you know? <laughs> yeah, honestly. I didn't know who, because you didn't know who would then turn around and be laughing at you for yeah. having an accent or be laughing at you because you're mexican right so Mm -hmm. yeah that's why i just i just stick with uh with our people (laughs) it's a it's a defense thing yeah yeah Yeah. um so yeah i mean i think that learning about the sanctuary movement it would have been it should have been in the so helpful honestly well and that's my thing why wasn't it not because it was during the 80s there's stuff from the 80s in the textbooks well you could find uh i mean the reagan immigration reform or whatever you know Mm -hmm. how a bunch of people got uh documented after Mm -hmm. that that's in there yeah why isn't this in there but there's nothing i mean there's nothing about there's stuff about the cold war but there's zero about the united states involvement in latin america and exactly yeah but that's why because to teach about this there would have to be recognition Mm -hmm. that the united states caused instability in central america that led to Mass, Mass migration. migration, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would like to take a look at textbooks now. I haven't seen what they look like in in high schools, because this is this is the same time period where you're learning about some injustices, mm-hmm. but not all. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a few years ago I read an article or something. I don't remember how I came upon it, but um, about uh textbooks that they were trying to get the board to pass for like Texas or something. And it was just like a bunch of like gloss over every <laughs> mm-hmm. glaring issue. And then they even wrote about slavery like um, 
like trying to like in a way that was like passive like not i don't know it was just awful and i'm like this is what they're trying like to it was teach. good for everyone yeah and, and other you know parents out here are trying to be like oh they're teaching this and it's like no <laughs> it's funny it's funny because um they're like oh crt crt mm-hmm. schools when we're really learning the most like whitewashed versions of yeah. everything that so it's like what are you talking about what do you think is going on in school mm-hmm. <laughs> we are being lied to and <laughs> yeah and i'm like guys. why are you even mad like this is real history it's because they're scared yeah of how horrible the united states will look because they are horrible yeah <sighs> yeah but yeah i didn't i guess i didn't i knew like i like i said earlier i knew about sanctuary movements not movements but sanctuary that churches were sanctuary for immigrant and other issues and but i guess i never knew about this big movement that happened and why they're sanctuary uh why they are sanctuaries now uh so that was cool thanks um was that all you had yeah okay well like you said earlier even today there's still sanctuaries and we can see this happening in real time in texas right now because I don't know if anyone else has heard, uh, but Texas has introduced House Bill 20 and House Bill 7. And these are very, very like trying to tighten the border. Very, I'll just say what they are. So HB 20, House Bill 20 would create a border protection unit whose head would answer only to the governor, which right now is Greg Abbott. Oh, God. And this would allow this administration to deputize any law-abiding citizen to serve in this unit. So no, anyone, anyone. So they're trying to like formalize Minutemen. Yes. And they would participate in enforcement actions against people thought to be migrants and asylum seekers crossing the border between the United States and Mexico and throughout the state. Uh, People serving in the unit would be granted criminal and civil immunity against claims of wrongdoing. Oh my God. That is not okay. How do you, how does a regular person identify someone thought to be a migrant or asylum seeker? Well, they see someone brown. (laughs) Yeah. They see someone that looks like they are from uh, Central America, Mexico, Haiti, like Mm -hmm. anyone that doesn't look white, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you are a white migrant and these people are just trying to look for someone and they don't hear you speak, you'd be safe, right? But if we go back to uh, Arizona, when all those, when the police had the power to stop anyone and then deport them, right? People born here were being stopped yeah. because they looked Salvadorian, Mexican, which is honestly the biggest population in the area. Obviously, there's other Latina people yeah. there, but like they were basing this off of really Mexicans. They were like, and to, I mean, I was gonna say, and to them, there's only Mexicans. So to them, like, yeah, even though we know that there's yeah a whole group of people, right? But they were stopping people that just it was racist. It was like based on how you look. Yeah. So what's going to happen here? It's the same thing. You can't just determine someone thought to be a migrant, thought to be an asylum seeker. Right. And then to say they're granted civil immunity because against claims of wrongdoing. That's a mess. Yeah. That's a mess waiting to happen. HB 20 would also claim authority for Texas to deny entry on 
public health grounds, uh, similar to Title 42. This was invoked um, during COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that was like, you can't enter if you're this mm-hmm. uh, because you're going to bring diseases. And this is eugenic. And yeah, in it's there's no other well, see, and that's way around why it. We have this podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is history repeating itself again yeah because because when countries there's like a like a mass i don't know what you call it when they purposely don't teach something you know what i mean yeah so there's no recognition of these wrongdoings and when people don't know about these wrongdoings then the country and the government is never held accountable for these wrongdoings and they just repeat them and repeat them and repeat them do it again yeah because if we look back to, oh, my God, just all of history, even things we've talked about already on this podcast. Yeah. But um, Mexicans were subjected to chemical showers that then inspired gas chambers in Germany. I mean, the Nazis learned eugenics from the United States. From the border. Yeah. Yeah. From border practices in the United States back then. Because they Mexicans were thought to be dirty they were thought to bring diseases what is this is this this is the same shit again like years later and i'm like um abbott don't pretend you care about diseases because you didn't do shit about covid like exactly stop Stop. (laughs) yes and also anyone caught crossing the border would be slapped with a ten thousand dollar fine and charged with a third degree felony right now it's a misdemeanor it is not and first of all it used to be like a not like a crime yeah, we talked we, we yeah. talked about it in the Gran Marcha episode, yeah. but there was a law that then uh, it was a section of the immigration law of 1924 that criminalized crossing the border. Yeah. Before then, it was not a crime, and this wasn't even enforced until, until mm-hmm. George Bush, the George Bush administration. Yeah, and HB seven. So HB seven would create a border protection court. It's just ridiculous. It is so ridiculous. Yes, I mean, you can't even handle the current immigration court. You're gonna try. To create Make another a whole new one? one? Yeah. Okay, so it would create a border protection court and criminal system that would institutionalize much of the separate and unequal system of arresting, jailing, and prosecuting people along the border piloted under Governor Abbott's Operation Lone Star Dragnet. And I should have looked at what that is. I don't know what, what is that it is. What is it called? Operation Lone Star Dragnet? Hmm. I don't know. Um, but so it would... Okay, let me... This... I found another place that actually worded that better than the law itself so um it would allow for county commissioners courts in border regions to establish a border protection court program in which detained migrants would be charged for border related offenses essentially establishing a parallel court system for migrants detained by the newly border protection units from hb20 so they would work together it would also back using public and private funds to prop up this new court system. And it would continue barrier construction along the U.S.-Mexico border. And like all of this is wrong, but also this is destroying the ecosystem yeah. in, in the border region. It's it's destroying animals uh, that were living there that have been there, you know, before the border was criminalized. It's endangering um, this beautiful butter butterfly mm. uh, species there was also like a park across the border mm-hmm. um that is like being destroyed it was like a butterfly sanctuary i want to say oh that's being endangered so at the time of recording hundreds and hundreds of texans actually 300 something people showed up to testify against hb7 and hb20 testimonies were cut off All right, um, texans oh <laughs> 
yeah i well okay like like 300 almost 400 people signed up to testify and they were cut off around 320 oh. the last person to testify was a nine-year-old his oh name God. is asher vargas let me send you his speech so you can and i'll insert it in here Wow, and it says that he it was past 10 p.m. and he when he gave his testimony when he testified. Wow, yeah. presenting myself, and I'm here to oppose HB 20. I volunteer a lot at migrant welcome centers. I help by sorting clothes because sometimes they don't have what they need. I also help by serving food. Oh. I help my dad with planning their airplane schedules with their families to unite them. I find oh joy in God. helping this the migrants. <laughs> I just feel so good to help others. The migrants come seeking peace and better lives, just like my abuelita did. This bill will make it harder for them, which is not very kind. Do you want to be known as a hateful, unwelcoming state? I know I don't. I want to be known as the friendship state. Just because people come from another place doesn't mean they can't have a positive impact on the world. They are not dangerous people. My abuelita came from Guerrero, Mexico in the 80s. My dad and my uncle were born here and are firefighters. And my uncle is also a Navy veteran. My dad and my uncle not only save lives, but they risk their lives for others. They help serve our community like many other immigrants. My abuelita might have come from somewhere else, but eventually she became a U.S. citizen. This bill would be saying that this is no longer possible for people like her. That means people can't start new lives with their families here. The poem at the feet of the Statue of Liberty says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming sore. Send these to the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I left my lamp beside the golden door. People who come from other places are tired from long journeys, and we should welcome them and give them the care they need. I am nine years old, and even I know that's what you adults should be focusing on. So please don't vote for this. I love that. <laughs> he said, even I, a nine-year-old, know this. Wow. <laughs> that was amazing. <sighs> Wasn't it? <sighs> that kid, kid is my new like... hero. <laughs> yeah, he said, you adults should be focusing on helping the tired and straight the drag them. He's like, yeah. I'm fucking nine and I know this shit. Yes. He's like, you really want to be known as a hateful state? <laughs> I want to be known as a friendship state. I'm like, that is so innocent and I love it. I know. It's so sweet. And he and he said it in his thing, but he helps um his. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah his i think he said his grandma yeah his abuelita go and and like feed them yeah oh my god and okay um, so that is amazing to me because this is someone who's a parent i mean it's second generation right yeah and i think a lot of times it happens that i don't know if your grandparent is someone who immigrated like the fight for our fellow immigrants is like lost you know what i mean and yes. we see a lot of people like that are second generation like oh get out of this country and it's like bitch you wouldn't be here <laughs> This is what I don't, I have never understood. And not even second generation, first gen like us. <laughs> yeah. Embarrassing, yeah, honestly. Insane. Yeah. Embarrassing. Yeah. Embarrassing. <laughs> Embarrassing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I, I wanted to, you know, end it there. Um, please read more about HB7, HB20. Help the people there protesting if you can. Yeah. the la I think the last, like, an immigrant protests i attended but then it, it and 
it was like 2020 when the mm-hmm. kids were found in the cages. But I left pretty early because it was like getting. I didn't want to like stay late because yeah, things get violent in Portland. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I went. I didn't even go. I wanted to go to the Portland one, but then um, Kyle was like, "No, we can't go to that because yeah, it's Portland and you never know." Yeah. So uh, instead, I went to a small one held at a church actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Wait. churches. I mean, yeah. Some of them are good. <laughs> I think with anything, there's always nuance. You know, nothing is <sighs> yeah. black or white. And at the end of the day, at end of the day, religion and church is important to um, many, many immigrants that come. I did yeah. my. I'm going to bring out my educated Latina moment here. Okay, <laughs> Miss Masters. Yes. Yeah. In my MSW program, <laughs> we didn't do. We had an option of doing a thesis or what was called an exam or like a research or whatever. And so I did the exam. And part of that is you had to create like essay questions for yourself and answer them. And so it was like four mini essays in one. (laughs) Oh, okay. And so my topic was on um, Central Americans, immigrants. And, you know, it was a rough time for me because I procrastinated, but also because I read about horrible things for like two weeks straight because I procrastinated, honestly. So Mm -hmm. I was like crying, typing, you know? Yep. But I mean, one of my questions had to do, and I don't remember them anymore, but it had to do with resiliency and hope and the role that religion played in that. And so, and so many of like the migrants that were interviewed, they were so hopeful. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I they know. They were so hopeful and like their faith kept them going. And so like, that's why we can't really, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and rag on people who believe in this because it does help people going, keep going. Yeah. Including like the immigrants that we're, you know, out here trying to support, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important for churches to step up and, and help. Take these strong sides, I guess. Yeah. Make this these kind of statements and take these stands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Taking a stand, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that is uh, the end of our episode, I guess. Huh? Yeah. Well, this was great. This was a great. <laughs> yeah. Um, although, I mean, it's always hard to talk about these things, but anyway, it was still, I mean, that's every episode. Don't we say that every time? (laughs) We do. We do. Um, but all right. Thank you everybody for listening. Please leave us a five-star rating, a review if you're so inclined to do so. (laughs) Only good reviews. Yeah. 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 Don't make us cry. No, just kidding. (laughs) Recommend us to your Latin American history loving friends. (laughs) Yes. And yeah, thanks for listening. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, read about immigration history and do what you can to to help in uh, these movements uh, like right now in Texas. Mm-hmm. But and I mean, a lot of places, I guess, across the country. But right yeah. now, specifically Texas, mm-hmm. read about HB7, HB20. And yeah, yeah, that's all I have to add. All righty. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.